Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the VET ECC Education Podcast. We are here today with Lou Northway, registered veterinary nurse, also known as Lou the Vet Nurse on social media. We're going to get right into it. We got Lou. We got her. We locked her down. Hello there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, locked down in lockdown. Yeah, right. Um, (laughs) So Lou Northway. Uh, registered veterinary nurse extraordinaire, um, social media guru, perhaps. Um, why don't you tell us a bit about you, Lou? Oh, a bit about me. Okay. A blank. Well, I'm, 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm registered veterinary nurse. Um, I've been in practice now for 16 years, I think. Um, qualified for 11. Um, I'm very much still in love with my job. Um, I've worked in various practices, uh, first opinion and referral. I'm currently still working in a large first opinion practice in Buckinghamshire, um, clinical nursery, and I love it to pieces. Um, And then when I'm not at work, I'm on social media in my uh, social media vet nurse capacity as Lou the Vet Nurse, um, sharing hints and tips and the best bits of our wonderful profession. So yeah, my life is work, Lou the Vet Nurse, and out of work, Lou the Vet Nurse well but i couldn't be happier <laughs> brilliant well it's a different message than what we get uh not that we're flooded but a lot of people who are feeling a bit burned out or a bit jaded about their job so what i mean what keeps that spark going for you is it the social media side or is it other things it's a combination of everything to be honest for me it's all about um setting little goals and moving forwards with them so always having something that you're studying, thinking about, learning about, um, helping your colleagues with something, having a project basically to think about. Um, Because I think we sometimes get a bit fatigued, perhaps when we get a bit bored, if we haven't set ourselves any goals for a while. So, I mean, they don't have to be massive. It can be just something very small. But um, for me, it's just always looking forward to, oh, what's next? Um, And moving in that direction. Um, And CPD, further education, is a massive driver, personally for me. Um, I know it's not for everyone. That's absolutely fine. But um, I do think that's really, really important. So on the day that you created your Lou the Vet Nurse project, what were you thinking or what inspired that? Well, it came about over Christmas two years ago. I was sat at home, um, not at work, (laughs) um, thinking about work and thinking how much I missed being there because I'd actually had a few days off. And I thought, you know what, I'd really like to start a blog sharing the best bits of the day um hints and tips i've just finished a certificate at that point as well i thought oh my gosh there's been so much during this course that if i'd known this years ago i could have done my um like i felt like i would have done my job much better i want to share those little pearls of wisdom um and that is really how it began to be honest it was um when i was sat on the sofa eating crisps watching netflix feeling quite bored <laughs> that was when the moment came excellent <laughs> Well, so I'm curious about your relationship with your social media then, because you hear a lot of, I suppose, big profile creators and people who make a lot of YouTube videos, they talk about the the pressure and mm. the burden of having to constantly create content to get things out there. So where do you feel like you fall on that spectrum and how do you manage keeping it something that brings you joy rather than a task? 
Yeah, um, that definitely does resonate with me. Um, and to start with, I wouldn't say I felt that, but as the time has gone past, um, especially at the moment when I'm not in practice getting those little inspirations every day, um, you can feel under a lot of pressure or the like you're letting your followers down. And I know of many other nurses um, and people now also who have pages that feel very similar. So it's sort of balancing that you don't have to post every day, but go with when you have a, a good thought or an idea, then go with it. But there's no there's no need to turn everything out all day, every day, um, because it's quite hard to create content. And it's not just about the writing, it's the research um, and also making aesthetically pleasing graphics. <laughs> yes. Which, um, sometimes <laughs> I can sit there for like an hour fiddling with posts and then think, no, don't like it and I delete it. And then I think, oh, I've just wasted a whole hour. Why? You know, so um, that does definitely resonate with me. But um, I would advise anyone that's thinking of doing it or who is already doing it, do it when you want to do it. Like you're not under pressure to do it. No one's making you do it. So do it when you feel like you want to. I agree. It can be a lot of fun. And then if I feel the moment it turns into a task um i tend to take a step back like the whole top tip series i sort of did all in bulk ahead of time and sort of pre-scheduled them because um i did a talk down for the the central london bva on my top tip so it sort of came off the back of that but yeah i don't feel bad about taking a step back and not putting anything out there um, yeah, like some days I'll, I'll have a creative flow and I'll be able to like, you know, bang out a week's worth of posts and that's great. But then I'll have other weeks where my mind is dry as the desert <laughs> and nothing comes. <laughs> so, um, but that's fine. And it, it does take time to sort of tell yourself that that is okay. Um, but yeah. Real. Um, and then, well, I suppose we love talking about balance in this career. Um you how do you you balance your your leadership role at your practice with your clinical practice and how do you ensure that you are still keeping up with uh, or do you have any trouble with with keeping up with being involved clinically versus being involved in in your leadership role yeah so um it it definitely is hard especially with my so we have i have a head nurse called mike he's lovely um and i work as clinical nurse lead so we have slightly different roles so he he basically um, is more in charge of sort of like organising the day um, and things like that. Um, my input really is from a clinical perspective. So um, I do quite a lot of auditing and surveillance, um, researching, updating of our clinical um, guidelines, not just our nursing ones either, sort of some of our veterinary ones as well. Um, but my practice have been very good at giving me sort of like half, um, half day a week, half day every other week or sometimes all day to work on those sort of clinical, sorry, non-clinical areas of my role. So doing my audits, things like that, which then enables me other days to be able to nurse on the shop floor and teach and mentor. And that's, that's what I really enjoy. Um, but it, it, is a, it is a really hard thing to balance, if I'm honest. And I would say up until when I went on furlough, um, I felt like I hadn't been nursing as much as perhaps I'd wanted to. Um, but um, yeah, it's ongoing, work in progress. <laughs> Good. Um, I want to to touch on something you just said. Then the the auditing and the the thing that I've noticed at at the Ralph, we are um, a teaching practice for Surrey. 
And one thing they have to do now as part of their EMS is, um, I think, at least two clinical audits, which um, I'm still a fairly new graduate, you know, 2015, which seems crazy that it's been five years now. But the audit thing was not really a part of our curriculum at all then. So yeah. what, I mean, it's, it's a part of my, my life now, you know, we do a lot of uh, critical reflection of our cases, auditing of our procedures. We're very proactive in that sense. Um, M&M rounds. Um, and we have a lot of, we actually have a whole team dedicated to that side of things, the sort of non-clinical, but still clinically important um, yeah. human factors, behavior, et cetera. So what, what out of your auditing has come up and um, what what have you put in place then to promote safety, preparedness, et cetera? Um, so prob- the, the main, well, from a safety perspective, I would say the checklist. So we use the Association of Veterinary Anesthetists checklist uh, to make sure crucial steps aren't missed during the preparation period in regards to anaesthesia and that's something I'd recommend everyone does really simple and straightforward to get sort of the bits together to need to want to do it um, and there's an implementation guide as well which explains in detail each step as to why we do it um, sometimes I think that is the gap it's like oh well yeah I could do that but you know why do I need to so that's a really important part of getting your team on board to start using checklists um, in regards to sort of like the auditing side though that's all about improving standards so some things that I've audited have been okay and I thought okay well we're, we're doing all right here but to be honest like there's always room for improvement so you know the one thing that I think is overlooked a lot is patient temperatures during anesthesia and on recovery so one of the simplest most um, sort of easiest clinical audits to do is to start monitoring your patient's temperatures during the procedure and also at the end um, and you can make it into like a fun exercise as well so you know which member of your team can um sort of bringing a patient back with the most sort of normal temperatures and they get surprised <laughs> at the end of the week, you know. <laughs> Things like that really can help. Um, <laughs> they went out and bought their own bear hugger and a hairdryer. Yeah. <laughs> I've got my own bear hugger and I've got my own set of socks now to put my patient's feet. Exactly. Brilliant. Um, but I think we're all responsible for clinical standards and I don't think it always comes from above. Like independently, we can all be striving for better. So um, sometimes doing little audits like that and just saying, oh, do you know what? one third of patients this month had a temperature less than 36 you know that you know we, we really need to be improving that next month we're going to increase it to only a quarter of patients um and things like that so baby steps forward but um yeah it's it, that i find really motivating and inspiring in practice because you're always moving things forward and you're not just doing what you've always done it's re- reviewing reflecting auditing and then the process starts again i love it Nice. So what are you doing to keep those guys warm? Um, well, personally, my, my number one love in life are bear huggers or warm air devices. Sorry, should I say I'm not supposed to use brands? Um, but yeah, warm air devices, I think by far are the most effective. And also being really conscious when you premedicate a patient that you need to start warming them or keeping them warm at that point. Um, so depending on what drugs you're using, we know that um, acepromazine is a vasodilator. So any patients that have had ACP are very likely to get cold if you don't cover them up and keep them toasty. Um, so with our dogs, make sure we what we call Superman them. So we get a fleecy blanket, drape it over their back, tie it around the front. Nice. Um, so when they try and shake and shake it off like they always do, it doesn't fall off. And then as they lay down on their vet bed, they're all, to- all toasty. Um, and with cats, 
if you have the luxury of an incubator, use it. We don't, unfortunately. Um, but um, you know, slide a pad in, cover them with a, a fleecy blanket. Most cats are quite frightened when they're in the clinic anyway. Um, I find we don't have separate wards, unfortunately. So often if you cover them with a fleecy blanket, they'll happily stay hidden underneath. So they keep nice and toasty. <laughs> so, you know, it's just making small changes there. But pre sort of making sure they're kept warm prior to induction um, is so, so important. And then, yeah, definitely warm air devices throughout. I feel the same way about our trauma patients in, you know, they usually come in a bit cold, a bit shocky, and then they get plopped yeah. on a cold metal table. So you always try and have them on a vet yeah. bed, try and at least maintain. Or x-ray, ultrasound. Yes, exactly. Yeah, all of those places, yeah. Well, so like how much time do you think you spend going from pre-med to sort of induction, clipping, prepping, and then into theatre? Like for some of these patients, it can be half an hour, 45 minutes before they even hit theatre and they've already had plenty of opportunity to lose temperature. So I think yeah. being aggressive in managing temperature beforehand is a really good idea. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there are studies to show that pre-warming um, did make does make a big difference, um, but you obviously need to make sure it's kept up, kept up throughout, mm. um, especially cats. I mean, dogs are much easier to be kept warm, but I find cats just love getting cold. Um, <laughs> And you know, at my practice, a lot of cat dentists, for example, and those patients are really prone to hypothermia. They often get a little bit wet unless you're really on the ball trying to keep them dry as well, which will obviously exacerbate heat loss. Yes. Um, and yeah, so making sure I, we prioritize, we have two warm air devices at my practice. One is for theatre and one is for prep. And the one in prep is often used on the dental table. So, um, yeah. No, it can be, it's almost like they give up, isn't it? <laughs> like, fine, I'm anesthetized. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get freezing. Um, yeah, and they get cold so quickly. Their temperature falls away much quicker than dogs, I find. Um, and yeah, with dentals as well, I have a top tip, actually. Um, we have medical pet shirts for uh, cats post-neutering, for example, to stop them interfering with their wounds. Um, but after they've been pre-medicated, sometimes it's nice to slip a pet shirt on them because again, you've got an insulating layer there, which they can't shake off. And then if they're going to have a dental procedure, it's not going to be in the way. Um, and again, it's another layer to keep them nice and toasty. So that would be another a little top tip of mine. Excellent. Here you go. Future Lou the Vetness product, a fleece pet shirt that you can put on after pre-medication to keep them, oh, keep yeah. them warm. That'd be such a good idea. I should try and um, get on Dragon's Den and try and create one, maybe that actually warmed as well or something. I love it. A little waterproof <laughs> coating. They'll be there in a second. Yeah, insulating waterproof coating. Yeah, that would be great. Oh, I'd love it. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, so what about your... Um your your checklist because i think the the challenges are always the human side of things and the the point you brought <laughs> up are people don't realize they need a checklist until they start using a checklist and realize how much gets caught out so how have you approached implementing those from uh, a human side i think it's just communicating that the checklists are not designed for patronizing or to show people what they don't know because we all know loads but in emergency situations or when we're busy sometimes we, we forget things and sometimes they can be really important things and then we beat ourselves up about it for about a week afterwards so if you can bring a checklist in which has all of those key bits of information on you're winning um, and it, it is all about education and getting everyone on board so 
when when you do implement them in practice, I'd recommend sort of holding a team talk or a very informal discussion with everyone, just saying this is the idea, this is the concept. Um, also presenting evidence helps. So if you refer back to human medical world, the World Health Organization have massively reduced um, patient deaths and complications through implementing checklists in the most poorest parts of the world. Um, and it's amazing, it, and it just shows that we're all human, we all make errors, but using checklists makes a massive difference. Um, so that those would be my first few tips. And then also, day to day, it's sort of making sure that, that it is being done. So we put our little checklist on the back of that anaesthetic form. So before induction, it should be ticked off that the task is being completed. Um, and to start with, I won't deny there was a little bit of resistance, but I think everyone's now on board and it's only positive. So, yeah. Nice. I suppose the the not to get too deep, but the the human ego is a weird thing, isn't it? And how mm-hmm. it can, and I suppose the attempt on our side has been to frame these things as the the goal is great patient care, and at the end of the day, that's the thing that matters. Obviously, one of our core things is to prioritize the well being of our staff, but the mission is successful and good patient care and if you frame everything in there um it's not about your performance it's not about your skills it's not about your knowledge it's the fact that you're a human being and rather than yeah being shocked and surprised when a mistake happens you should reframe that as mistakes will happen because i'm human and i didn't sleep super well last night i got in a fight with my roommate or um I almost got in a car accident on the way to work or, you know, who knows what happens that are sitting in your subconscious that are going to affect how you perform that day. Absolutely. Yeah. And like, you know, you could have been halfway through setting up and someone says, oh, could you just answer the phone quickly? And you're halfway drawing up a drug and then you finish drawing up the drug, but you actually draw up the wrong amount and things like that. And it's, you know, taking those steps back, actually, have I done this right? Do I have everything that I need? Am I ready? It's about supporting your team, to be honest. I don't, view them as like um they're like having a best friend with you really just to like say are you ready and it's like oh yeah I am because <laughs> um, you know something as simple as the ringoscope you know you have a brachycephalic patient you've been so paranoid that they're going to regurgitate you've got your suction you've got your swabs um you, you're ready to tilt that table if they do something stupid on induction um you've actually got your laryngoscope you haven't checked if the light source is working um, you induce uh, anesthesia and then you realise your bulb's not on and oh my gosh and then intubation's a mission and it's just those small little things like that that make all the difference so it's like having not just one checklist that maybe fits all um, but depending on like where you work type of patient you're seeing like make your own what specific things do you want to make sure is not missed um, because you can have new members of your team as well which are unfamiliar with the species type perhaps or the procedure um, and every little helps so yeah, I'm a massive advocate of guidelines, checklists and resources to help the team. Nice. Well, I will tell you whether you're interested or not about our um, sort of checklist and protocols, which are always in the works. And we sort of said, you know, it's a trial and error thing. Again, we have a team dedicated to, to sorting this out and um, it grows and evolves as, as we do it. But we've got this thing called Teampo. Um, it's a big acronym. Um, so it's not supposed to be like a big 
dragged out long discussion. It's sort of an informal pre-procedure, not just anesthesia, but you know, if we're putting in a chest drain, if we're going to be uh, ventilating a patient, uh, even a feeding tube, like any sort of procedure that might be a bit more complex. So it stands for uh, team, equipment, environment, medication, patient, procedure, post-procedure, and other, um, with Love the it. headline that like, what's going to screw our day up <laughs> or like the others. Is there anything else that's going to ruin our day? Um, yeah. So, so the team is who's going to be involved. Are they all ready? When are they going to be ready? Are they going to be any interruptions? Um, equipment. Equipment gets me all the time. I'm always finding things that I've missed out when I go over the equipment thing. Um, so again, the laryngoscope, do you have enough syringes? Do you have backup things? Um, your environment, where are you going to do it? Um, again, do you have access to everything? Is there good lighting? Um, medication, have you pulled everything up? Have you double checked it with someone? Do you have a reversal agent? Do you have um, emergency medications if you need it? Um, and then the patient, of course. Um, is there anything specific with them? Any temperament concerns? Yeah. Any comorbidities? Um, what is the actual procedure? Um, and sometimes we'll even do like a quick verbal run through of what's going to happen. So everyone's on the same page. Um, so they know what the steps are going to be. Yeah. Um, the post-procedure issues. Do we need to take any confirmatory radiographs? Are they going to be cold? Um, do they need any monitoring? Temperature, of course. Um, and then just sort of other. Have we actually got consent from the pet carer to do this procedure or, you know, something like that? So, um, oh, I love it. I think that's amazing. Like that discussion as well, it would be so sort of invigorating for everyone and like to know what exactly, what exactly is going to happen, what the plan is, if something goes wrong, what are we ideally aiming for, for it to go right. Um, I, yeah, I just think team talks like that are so valuable. And I wish as a profession we did it more um, day to day, like no matter where you work. And, and what the sort of patients in front of you, like having that time just to talk them through as an individual every time, I think makes such a massive difference. Yeah. But oh, I'd love to stand in the prep room with you guys when you're having one of your talks. I'd be, <laughs> I'd be like, <laughs> Well, so, and the whole point of this is that it, it sets a mindset, right? So it's not just, oh, we have yeah. to go through another checklist. It's like anyone can call this at any time. If anyone has any concerns, it's like, hey, why don't we do a quick tempo? It'll take a few minutes it's not a long drugged out thing you're not sitting there going through a list it's literally a verbal thing and, and again anyone can lead it um but then we also have like a pre-induction checklist and then like a surgical checklist so then we have like a uh so the team pose more of a discussion whereas then we have like our pre-induction checklist which is more of like a, a read and respond and that's usually led by yeah. um the nursing team um um and then um, a post anesthesia, like a checkout checklist as well. So it's a, and then we got things for handover. So um, I suppose what I'm trying to say is it's trying to get over the the feeling that this is a burden rather than something that's going to add to patient yeah. safety. And actually, um, man, we flag up stuff all the time. You like to think that we've got our act together because we do these things regularly. But when you've got an intricate procedure or you've got lots going on, it's so easy to miss stuff out. And then you're running back and forth. Can you grab me Absolutely. this? Um, so I know you are a big proponent of preparation 
um, especially when it comes to getting emergency patients. What sort of emergency caseload do you have down there during during normal times? I know you do your own out of hours, right? Um, yeah. So we still do our own emergency patients. Although actually, as of last a couple of months ago, we actually used um, another practice for late night emergencies. So after ten o'clock, um, our emergencies have diverted elsewhere, which has changed the amount of sort of the big ones, I call them, <laughs> um, yeah. coming to practice. I often find they're in the middle of the night. Um, but sort of, um, I would say in, in the busy first opinion practice I work in, the types of emergencies that we have are um, hemoabdomens. We get a lot of sleeves. Um, I think it's to do with the demographic of dog breeds that we have in the local area to where I work. Um, we do get the odd um, gastric portion as well. Again, breed specific. Um, and then really juicy stitch-ups where near woodland. So often dogs oh, have run yeah. into deers and get some significant wounds yep some cr- like crazy you think oh my gosh um but yeah sort of abdominal emergencies i would say are our, our thing um emergency c-sections quite a few especially at this time of year it always seems to be in the summer we see more okay, um, sort of, um more c-sections um but yeah probably my well not my favorite because that would make me a bit dark but i love <laughs> it <email> abdomen. <laughs> that's like one of my favorite emergencies to deal with I just think there's so much that we can do in preparation for these guys makes all the difference so yeah well so run me through your your setup so you get the call you've got your 10 year old golden retriever or labrador who's now collapsed suddenly but they've been a bit weak or they've been a bit lethargic what are you going to do so firstly i'm going to tell all my team that we, we might have something um juicy on the way down i was going to say fun then but again it's a bit of the bit of the wrong word to use isn't it um and then i would start setting up so i would get some nice large bore catheters um i would see what sort of fluid therapy we have in stock the practice we don't stock blood products but have that in the back of your mind that it's something that we may need to get hold of so you know at this point what are we going to do about it and we do have a practice local to us now which is stocking some is like the, the pet blood sharing scheme so that nice. is, that's been um, a big game changer for us. Um, um, and then asking probably normally delegates another nurse to have a surgical theatre because, you know, if there's nothing worse really than an emergency rocking up and you haven't set up theatre. You've done everything else, but you haven't done theatre. There's, there's often quite a lot to get out and you can always put it away if it doesn't end up being surgical. Um, I'd get out my active warming. So Mr. Bearhugger would come out as well. Um, and then I would just normally get the ultrasound machine um, out as well. But it's, relatively quick um jobby there um and then i'll just be ready i'd normally have my crash box of course as well and um, pre-calculate as many drugs as we can a lot of the patients that we find that come down with um hemoabdomens are often patients of ours that we've seen before so you have a rough weight often which you can work from nice. um so just get on it ask your vet what do you, what what do you think you're going to want to use um and then you can start preparing um monitoring equipment yeah, just everything. Love Absolutely it. everything. <laughs> <laughs> Are you guys doing auto transfusions at all for your hemoabdomens? You know what? I did one last year, um, but not routine. No, um, we don't. But we did do one in a dog that had been hit by a car. Um, it had a diaphragmatic hernia. It did actually have a ruptured bladder. Now, I know you're not supposed to do auto transfusions when they have a ruptured bladder, because, but we had no other option. Um, but it did the trick. He went into cardiac arrest twice prior to us doing the auto transfusion. So we were like, we literally need to give him blood. Like his heart is not, yeah. red cells. His 
So um, we literally sucked it out and then put it back into a filter and he survived and he woke up from the anaesthetic like he'd had a normal castrate. No joke, he thought he'd have <laughs> some brain damage or be, you know, not be himself. And he woke up and was really okay. Like We were really shocked. So um, that made a massive difference. So that was quite exciting. That's the first time I've actually done that myself to practice. Um, so that was good. Um, but we, we often use staff dogs, to be honest, as donor dogs. Yeah. We've got quite a lot of Labradors so, um, in, in the team. So we use those. But yeah, I think probably the one, one reason why we, we tend to do less auto transfusions is because I think of the fact that they're often near, near plastic. And I think there's advice preferably to try not to do auto transfusions in there if there's a near plastic process that's potentially caused the bleed. But um, when it's life or death, I guess it's, you know, it's definitely an option, isn't it? So, Yeah, it's a hard one. And I suppose to go to go deeper into that, I feel like a lot, of, if they are a, a hemangiosarcoma, they're probably metastasized already if they've gotten to the point of anyway, bleeding. Yeah, so absolutely. I think it's a very valid argument. Um, on the flip side, we have, we stock blood products, you know, we get them from pet blood bank because that's about all you can get them from. Um, but then is it ethical to give donated blood to a dog who probably has a high chance of having cancer and their lifespan is going to be reduced mm. versus um, giving them their own blood back. I don't know the answer to that. I'm, I mean, I've, I've done know, both yeah. with patients recently. We've done two auto transfusions, I think in the last couple of weeks with hemoabdomens. Um, but then alternatively, we've also done, done pack cell trans, well, transplants, <laughs> transfusions. Um, so it's not, not easy to navigate. And the same thing like with cats with feline leukemia who are anemic or FIV, like is it ethical to give them cat blood? But at the same time, we don't know what the underlying cause of their anemia is. Maybe the FIV or FIV is a bit of a red herring and it's unrelated. So I don't know. I don't know the answer. Yeah, it's really hard, isn't it? It's like, I think it, 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 it's being open-minded, like seeing both sides of the picture, but um, it's ultimately making the animal feel better, isn't it? Which, you know, Make, improving their welfare so if blood does make them feel better although yes their long-term outlook isn't great I guess that may be why we make the decisions that we do so yeah it's a tricky one ethics ethics I um I find quite quite difficult sometimes but um yeah <laughs> <laughs> no I hear you but <sighs> As we're having this discussion, I'm thinking to myself, how many times have I had a discussion with a client about their pet? And I've said, the outlook, the long-term outlook is very poor, but we're going to do everything we can to get them home, to spend some time at home, even if it's just for a few days. So I think with, with that in mind, I'm prepared to do most things as long as it's not contributing to the suffering of that patient. And if that's a blood transfusion, and you're right, man, they feel so much better, don't they, when they get a bit of blood in them? And they do. Like the the difference in in you know even in a matter of a matter of few hours is 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 huge. And the difference in dogs that have transfusion post splenectomy, for example, versus those that have splenectomy and a transfusion is massive. So um, yeah. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, you think of the types of cases that you see in practice where you often need blood. They're very rarely due to acute trauma, like it's generally near, near plastic, isn't it? Or yeah. something not very nice. So, 
Yeah, I think it it does make it more difficult to navigate. But yeah, I think I'm just of the opinion that if blood makes you feel better, it is it's you know like a medicine. Although it, it's obviously very very valuable, and animal another animal has donated it, and we should be very grateful. But if it makes them feel better, then I think they should have it, even if it just gives the owners another couple of weeks or months with them, and they're feeling relatively good for that. So. Amen. Yeah. And no blood should go out yeah. of date, right? If you've got the blood, use it. Oh, I know. Isn't it the worst? It's not the worst thing ever if you have a bag and you don't end up using it and then it goes out of date. Oh, yeah. The only um, blood product we actually do stock in practice is we always have a bag of um, frozen FFP. Nice. Sorry, FFP. I didn't see frozen FFP. Um, yeah. But um, we don't actually stock red cells in practice. Although, I say, it depends what we often have. I find we have emergencies and threes. So we'll have three pyos or three sleeves in a row or <laughs> yep. I just, you know, it might be a little <laughs> so weird when that happens. And that's something actually another emergency we see quite a lot of time eaters. Um but definitely not as much as when I was first in practice. I think that was like a weekly occurrence you'd have a juicy pyo, but um we we do definitely still see them, but not as much as previous. Well, so what are your thoughts on the the Old statement, never let the sun set on a pyometra. What's your approach? I, I agree. I think if they've, if they've got a pyo, they should have surgery. If, as soon as they've had the fluids, because often azotemic, we want to make the like, perfusion better and sort out any electrolyte and ab- abnormalities before they go to theatre. But, you know, I think a couple of hours of fluid therapy, um, sort of monitored and reassessed, prior to taking them to theatre I think absolutely just get it out because um, years ago I did see a dog that came in with a pie which didn't look that big on ultrasound um, but it erupted by the next morning when the dog went to theatre and I thought oh, I, I've always oh, I've thought that in my mind since you know that's such a massive shame um, and the dog didn't survive um, despite having lots of abdominal lavaging um, and things like that so um, I, my personal view I would just rather get it done but only once they've been um, properly fluid resuscitated. I think a lot of times in practice they can just be rushed to this and have it removed, but often they're really significantly dehydrated by the time they come in. And we see that on their blood results, you know, they're azotemic. So it's like we really need to address yep. that, even if it's pre renal azotemia. Like we need to sort that out. Like forget about the pyo just for a little while. Give us a couple of hours, let the nurse do some fluid challenges, sort out the blood pressure, make their pulse nicer, make them look less toxic and poorly and gross. And then let's take them to theatre because, um, yeah, I do think they're often a bit elderly as well. The dogs, they're sort of eight or above often. Yeah. A flu is good. Like <laughs> So, yeah. Well, let's, let's, let's explore that more because I, I don't think it can be say or said enough. Is there such a thing as a surgical emergency that needs to be taken immediately to theatre hmm. now i would i would probably say no actually i don't think that there is one in particular that needs to be taken straight into theatre unless it was something with an airway obstruction which needed like trachea opening up and the foreign body removing like that's literally it because if you think a gdv for example you can trochea their abdomen and their, their stomach to relieve some of the pressure whilst you give them fluids and analgesia um so that was that that that, that buys you a little bit of time with your spleens or your hemoabdomens again we probably want to you know improve precision as much as we can before we anesthetize them 
um, otherwise they're more likely to die. And um, <laughs> as I've just said, that fire meat, well, nutrition them is really, really important. And I think the other emergency, which is often overlooked, is um, foreign bodies. Yes. So these dogs are often being vomiting for days sometimes. Yep. And they, you know, they've got clinical signs of dehydration on blood. And you look at them and they look very dehydrated. And yet, you know, we need to go and get the stone out. Of course we do. We absolutely do. But, um, you know, we've, we've got a lot of work to do on the fluid therapy front first. So let's spend some time. Let's work out what their deficit is. Let's replace that for a while first. Let's improve the picture and then we'll go to theatre. But obviously as nurses, it's tricky sometimes for us to bring our, our thoughts forward like that. And in my practice, I would be happy to say, oh, would you like me to do a fluid challenge? Or, you know, so can I, can I administer, you know, 10 mils per kilo, reassess and let you know? And most of my vets are like, oh, yeah, Lee, that's absolutely fine. Go ahead. And I know in other practices, perhaps nurses don't feel confident to do that. But I would encourage you to have discussion with your veterinary team or your team in general about patients specifically when they come in like this, because it can make such a massive difference. Um, yeah, sorry, I've literally gone off on one there. No, that's great. <laughs> and I think our views are very much aligned on that. Um, th there's a really great site on the human side of things called MCRIT, which is run by a, a human critical history, works in, in sort of a weird hybrid emergency room ICU. Um, so okay. he sees the sicker emergency room patients, but they've not gone up to ICU yet. Um, but he's got this great series called The Laryngoscope as a Murder Weapon. Um, and it's <laughs> all about these people who have been rushed into intubation before optimizing mm, them big, or stabilizing them yeah. beforehand. Yeah. Um, and it's just, but yeah. it's so easy, isn't it? Like it's so easy to get focused on dog has surgical problem, dog needs surgery. And, and Absolutely. you get so hyper-focused, which again, well, I really think these checklists come into play because you get a bit of a moment to detach and take a step back and mm -hmm. think about the case critically. Yeah. Um, but I would agree. I, in humans, you know, if you've got a, a brain bleed or a subdural hematoma, you need to go to surgery right away. There's no doubt about it, or you're going to die. But for dogs, man, like there's there's very few things. Like even if you have um, like an open chest or a tension pneumothorax or something like that, you can seal that up. You can tap the chest, yeah, um, and then optimize them a bit before they go into theatre to repair it. So um, it does. I mean, it's sad when a patient with a fixable problem goes to theatre and dies possibly, I mean, it's always hard to say, but without having been optimised first. And the optimization, to be very clear, oh, yeah. like you've mm -hmm. just said, is is fluid therapy, proper pain relief, maybe some antibiotics. Yeah. Double checking that's, that. That's the top two, isn't it? Fluid yeah. and analgesia. And then, and then just see them improve before your eyes, really. I mean, often they do, like, feel so much better. Like so going back to like foreign bodies and dogs, um, you know they're very really dehydrated sometimes, and you know that under anaesthesia, if you um, develop hypotension, the one organ or organ structure which is affected a lot is your your like, GI tract because it's not that important relative to all of your other organs. So if you're taking your patient to theatre and you're going to do sort of multiple enterotomies, then surely it makes sense to give fluids to make sure their perfusion is optimal to help with healing afterwards. <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's all a bit of a balancing act. But um, 
yeah, we can help just by slowing down a little bit. Amen. And it's like the the great quote from the House of God, where they say at the first sign of cardiac arrest, take your own pulse. Um, <laughs> and be, because it is so stressful, like we when we're doing our CPR drills at work, um, I think a lot of our nursing team feel very apprehensive and not quite sure what to do first, and they feel quite flustered. So we, I say mm-hmm. that quote and I encourage like, take a second or two, like a second or two is not gonna make a massive difference. Just take a deep breath, collect yourself, detach a little bit, and then move into the task you have ahead of you rather than rushing in and feeling yeah. frazzled because man, it's, you lose sight of what you're doing. You get tunnel vision, you sort of like, <laughs> again, your, your brain it just melts, doesn't it? Um, Oh, absolutely. I mean, even you know, you can practice the craft many, many times, and you can in a drill situation, it's still you feel all things and thumbs a little bit. But when it happens with a real patient, you're always like everyone has a bit of a wobble. But it, practicing it does make a difference. It's something that we don't do enough at my practice. I would openly admit that, um, and it's something that hopefully, like when I go back, I'd like to sort of have a a drill schedule. <laughs> <laughs> um, not that I'll remind them about it of course <laughs> then, um, it's not a genuine drill is it but um, um, I do think it's really important do you practice the recover guidelines the route yeah so I did the is that what you follow the recover course and my undergraduate research was on CPR. Um, so I thought I had my act together. I thought that was a hot CPR dude. Um, and then I did, (laughs) did the recover course and I had a couple of misconceptions, um, about CPR. Um, one was the role of adrenaline. Um, and man, I, if anyone out there is listening, the recover course, um, we're not sponsored by the recover course in any way, shape or form. Um, but, highly recommended and super affordable for vets it was it was 150 dollars yeah so you get i think there's a discount on at the moment as well just yes there is actually a discount for us all to do it so i was doing it that a couple of weeks ago um but yeah no it'd be fab and it's free for students like guidelines and oh brilliant um but yeah so following the algorithm so you know, the, the guidelines are your priorities are starting compressions, getting an airway and getting ECG pads on. Like those are your top three first things. Whereas, and of course, venous access. Um, but you don't administer any medications until after your first round of CPR. So after your two minutes of compressions, where historically I thought, man, we just got to get drugs in as soon as possible. Like start compressions, mm-hmm. ventilate, get some drugs in. But actually, if you have a shockable rhythm, which we do see now and again, like we do see uh, a bit of ventricular fibrillation in some of our crash patients, adrenaline will make it harder to to get them out of that rhythm with the defibrillator. So you're sort of shooting yourself in the foot a bit if you give adrenaline right away, which is a, honestly something I wasn't aware of. And I feel a bit bad about that. But the the course is excellent because not only does it, it provide a very nice balanced well, solid eight hours of cpd but it's so well drilled in and it's clear and it's concise and it's like here's a lecture here's the info here's the flow sheets now here's some questions and yep. they, they revisit every like every little bit they're revisiting it again and just reinforcing and reinforcing and reinforcing um so 
it it added so much value and now i feel so much more in control when i'm running a code yeah. as well like i even the psychological benefit of feeling secure has gone a, a really long way for me in in these things yeah i think i'm going to put that on my list for next week's furlough mission i'm going to do it <laughs> i'm going to do the course next week <laughs> it's you, really beautifully done inspired me <laughs> Um, some of our nurses have done it. They enjoyed it a lot. Um, cause it sucks, man. Like doing CPR sucks. It's, oh, it's so exhausting. Like it's so full on, isn't it? And you're, everyone's got, I always find that I've, I've got stakes myself by the end. <laughs> Amen. Just about the adrenaline of, yeah. And then we, absolutely. I've mentioned this a couple of times on my my Instagram and maybe the podcast, but like after a situation like that, and it happens, I can't see if it happens more often in emergency medicine or not, but any stressful situation where you feel yourself like that, um, like in, in human hospitals or human settings, they even recommend after a crash, like going to just lie down for 10 or 15 minutes before doing anything yeah. else, because you're so primed to make a mistake because you are so yeah. wound up you really need to like take it down a level or two even if it means making some consults wait or even moving on to that next task just make a cup of tea have a biscuit it's the english way <laughs> and um yeah oh, a cup of tea always makes everything better doesn't it <laughs> <laughs> it really does it's um it's important yeah and then i think like once you've sort of got over that sort of shock period yourself um i think having a chat with your team as well that are involved is really important so just saying oh how you how is everyone you know um what did we do really well today is there anything anyone thinks we should have done differently or could have done differently um and things like that i think having like a, a, a really informal team chat before everyone goes home is really important otherwise it well i'm sure everyone is fairly similar on this front you go home and you go over it again and again and again and again and again and, again, and sometimes those thoughts you have are not helpful or constructive um, so like using each other to support each other through things like that, I think is really, a really, really good idea. Do you have any good advice for newer graduates and just um, managing that side of things? Because we, you know, your education does a very good job of preparing you for a lot of things, but like paperwork, man, mm. no one tells you in vet school how much paperwork you're going to have to do. And I feel like that's a just sneaky little <laughs> secret that's yeah. like well you're in it now um but again the emotional side of things and and looking after your well-being like do you have any good advice for people on how to handle having a difficult case losing a patient and sort of self-care after that yeah. happens it's so hard i agree i do think like i, I mean the syllabus may have changed since i trained but i had no sort of um training as sort of like managing emotions or difficult situations um, but what I would say is how take, try and it does take a bit of effort for the culture in practice. So the way in which you will manage situations when things don't go the way you want or you lose the patient. So having maybe a person, if you're not a particularly social person, to have a chat with before you go home um, or at the time of when something happens. Um, or have like a team meeting once a week where you can just all talk about things this week that maybe um, people have been upset about and then troubleshoot together. Um, a lot of uh, stuff that I'm involved with now, I'm going to go back to auditing, but there's something called a significant event audit, which 
you can do as a team or just two people, um, which guides through how to navigate the situation without being blamed on each other or blame on anyone else. Um, because sometimes you will feel like it's your fault or I could have done this or I should have done that. It's about changing the language to use. Yeah. Um, and I think that is really, really helpful because none of us go to work intending to lose a patient or to make a mistake. And we need to like give ourselves a break and remember, as we said earlier in this um, session, we're all human. So if we can use resources and each other to navigate the situation when it all gets a bit mad, let's do that. But also remember, you don't always have to talk to someone at work. So we've got vet life. Um, if you're a vet nurse and a BVNA member, we, there's an advisory line there as well. And there is always someone to talk to. But um, it can be tougher hard at times. I'm not going to lie, I've had days where <laughs> yeah. I've really struggled. <laughs> uh, but then the next day, guarantee you're going to work and you'll have something on the other end of the spectrum. So you'll have a day of death and then you'll have a day of life. And it reminds you of sort of the start, the circle of life. And this is why what we do what we do. But um, yeah. I'm going to loop back very quickly to what we were talking about. And I wanted to throw in a top tip because we're all about the top tips recently okay. on our foreign body yeah, patients. Yeah. And that is yeah. passing a nasogastric tube and emptying the stomach before induction oh, yeah. um, to avoid your regurgitation. Because yeah. there's nothing worse Good than idea. inducing Good. and then... Bleh, <laughs> terrible oh it's horrible yeah they've got this really great model um uh, someone made this device called a salad which is uh a suction assisted laryngeal airway decontamination um because you know you've got like the yankower tips and the pool tips but if you've got like chunky regurge they're just useless um yeah so, so this is almost like a vacuum ended <laughs> thing for decontaminating but they actually invented this like they've made their own synthetic vomit <laughs> And they put it in right. a giant bucket and they've essentially got this human intubation model and they can flood the airway with vomit or the like the mouth with vomit <laughs> to simulate this like regurge event while you're trying to intubate. So it's just people get in the habit of like decontaminating Ugh. and think yeah. how gross, but also how cool. Like I would love to do more. What a um, job. Yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, like it's quite cool creative. It's like today we're going to be in a can of soup, so, and then we and then we're going to use um, yeah, let's call the grossing dog's eat like uh, rotten food waste. Oh like, no! To remove bone, but there's rotten gross waste, so you'd have to like re um, recreate that moment. Um, <laughs> yeah, gross. And how many times um, have you induced vomiting in a dog and have them bring something up to be like, well, he just threw up about you know, a half kilo of lasagna and they're like, lasagna? We didn't eat lasagna in the last week. <laughs> yeah. Like, what oh, have you bizarre, done? isn't it? The things that come up sometimes, like, oh, yeah. Gross. Went in looking for a sock last year and we found a tampon as well. So that was really lucky. Um, and they had no idea that the dog had eaten a tampon as well as a sock. So that dog was um, very fortunate. Yeah, wear gloves. <laughs> Yeah, oh. <laughs> you just don't know, do you? No, it's it's pretty bad. Uh, um, one of my top moments in practice, well, um, amusing moments, was um, a Labrador that had eaten some underwear, and we removed them off, we rinsed them off, but we always put them in like a sandwich bag to show the owner what the dog had eaten, and they were like a really sexy pair of pants. Um, anyway, 
Mr. and Mrs. came to pick up the dog and the pants, um, the wife was like, they're not mine. No. <laughs> and we were like, oh, uh, so so awkward. That was like one of the most um, amusing moments, like probably one of the most amusing discharges I've ever done. Well, we'll give you a moment. <laughs> <laughs> to, yeah. We'll give you a second to oh, chat about this. Got them on a walk, or absolutely in someone else's garden, maybe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, to go off, go off the deeper end here. There was that the old story that went around about the dog who um, vomited up some condoms, and then when the the husband was told, he said that that's really interesting because he had a vasectomy five years ago and the dog's an indoor-only dog. Oh. And it's like, whoop. Yeah, explain that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so awkward, isn't it, honestly? Um, yeah, everyone should contribute into like a book of, you know, stories like that. It would be really fun, a, fun, a funny read, I'm sure. Well, surely there's like a vet confessions or like a vet stories online anonymous thing. If not, we should make that <laughs> something else to do in yeah. the in the lockdown. This, this is uh, this is gonna hurt the veterinary edition. <laughs> <laughs> that was so funny. That book was brilliant. Oh, it's brilliant. Uh, yeah, I read it on honeymoon a couple of years ago. I absolutely loved it. I thought it was just brilliant. I could. I felt like I was walking around with him in the hospital and cringing at the same time. <laughs> but it's so nice having all these books like the Atul Gawande and um, the Adam K book and the House of God, like talking about the the human side of medicine because you get the mm. you you get the the medical side of things. And yeah, there's a real drive to talk about about the reality of these things. But maybe that's why seeing practice is so so important. Um, do you think that younger students who are coming in to see practice before applying to nursing school or vet school are getting a real impression of what the job is actually like? And do you think any of them I, have been discouraged? I think it depends where you go, because we we always have students at my practice will have like maybe one school, two school students, and maybe one two or even three EMS students as well, vet, vet school students all at the same time but and we love having them or I do um but often when you have a chat with them they'll be like oh I went to other vets and like they didn't talk to me or explain anything and it was I just felt like I was in the way and I said obviously like you can feel like that even when you work in the practice because everyone's in everyone's way that's normal but um I think I think they should be encouraged to get a lot more work experience than what they do at the moment and in more than one practice so I would say like a minimum of three places because I think one practice is just not enough to get a, like a really good gauge on what it's like um, because everywhere is so different and I do think if you go on a placement you know your first work experience ever and you go to a practice which isn't particularly accommodating then that could like absolutely shatter your dreams but that's not a good representation of the profession in general you know it could just be that that team was having a bad week for example you know they could have had a really bad run of cases the week before so I would hope that maybe they'll change it so that especially for nursing students they have to get more work experience Although I know that will be challenging because placements are already are, are very hard to get hold of. But yeah. yeah, I think it's really important that they get more than they're getting at the moment. Agreed. And again, uh, I was living in, in Florida when I originally was applying for vet school. And for the US schools, you need, I think University of Florida, when I got in touch with them, they said you need about 500 hours minimum to be competitive wow. on your application. So, wow, it's pretty intense. Mm. 
yeah more and I mean you think most students probably get 40 40 hours don't they um but nursing ones they'll probably have a week or two weeks of work experience I think is the requirement yeah so that's 80 hours but it's, it's just not enough I um, mean you, know, you could go to what a practice in somewhere very rural that's just one vet one nurse but like that's not gonna show you what the profession is like is it like a bigger picture so maybe one referral practice one first opinion practice or a hospital and a, and a, a general practice I don't know like I think it needs to be mixed up a bit Agreed, because there's so many different, like the flexibility of our job is great. And now that's getting into the whole, yeah, like the whole um, stay, go, diversify drive has been really cool to see what other people are getting up to. And, um, you know, I would, I would quite happily, the current job I have be quite happy that being the last job I ever have, meaning continue to do it until I retire. Um, oh, that's, that's so nice to hear. I feel quite similar. Like I'm very happy with sort of like the situation that I'm in as well. Although I would like to, my idea would be to be in referral, so come and work with you probably one day a week, um, and then be in my first opinion practice the other days, just to get my fix of like the you know extra weird and wonderful. Well, um, come check it out. But, yeah. <laughs> well, so the ultimate goal yeah. is, like a lot of referral places, is you know for Journal Club recently we did this paper that came out. Um, uh, was it? Uh, Veterinary internal, it might have been in JVEC actually. So it's it's um, looking at risk factors for burnout in veterinary nurses in a referral setting. Um, so well, it was it was specifically in like a teaching referral hospital. So that comes with its own set of stressors. Okay. Um, yeah. And and then they looked at the risk factors and also how it affected people's perceptions of medical errors, um, depression and, and resilience. And one of the, the big things, and I've come across this before, and you know, you come across these bits of information, you just sort of tuck them away in the back of your head, like just as a, a flag to be like, well, this needs more fleshing out, but we'll see what, what else comes out. Um, and the biggest part was about what you envision your job to be and what the reality of your job is. Um, and if those two are misaligned, then that's a big contributor to you feeling pretty miserable. Mm -hmm. And they yeah. talked about um, structures and they talked about um, what, what percent of time are you spending doing the things that you actually feel you should be doing versus other things like yeah. cleaning or restocking or janitorial tasks yeah. as a nurse. Mm -hmm. And so our ultimate goal, at least at our practice, is the nursing team will be responsible for placing, uh, you know, uh, pick lines, peripherally inserted central catheters, urinary catheters, fecal foleys, yeah. feeding yeah. tubes, um, probably things like central lines and doing some of those more advanced procedures. Um, right now there's a bit of a, a burden of, of them having to be involved in all the pricing, but hopefully in the future our, our um, sort of digital treatment sheet will sync up with our practice management software and all, most of the billing will be automatic and we just need to keep a bit of an eyeball yeah. on it so there's less of that to do not that it's like a terrible task because we've got systems in place to make it more streamlined and everything else but um again what we would like to see is a real focus on pure nursing and not having to worry about anything else and we've talked about our our clinic and you know we've set some lofty goals but 
um, very clearly. Also, it's going to be a long time until we can say whether we're successful in that. You know, we're thinking five to ten years rather than like, hey, we've been open for a year. What have we achieved? Well, you know, we've we've just been trying to find our feet more than anything. So, you know, now that we're getting a bit more established in our protocols and our staffing levels, we can start to focus on having our nurses more aligned with being purely nurses yeah. and doing nursing things and also yeah. doing more advanced things because another thing they talked about in this paper was um, a feeling of advancing your skills of learning of um, yeah. uh, feeling value as well. And those are the fun jobs. And I would much rather be able to focus on thinking about my patient, evaluating my patient, reading around the literature surrounding their condition, then having to be involved in every feeding tube placement, urinary catheter, et cetera, et cetera. Not that I'm unhappy to do so. And I like keeping that yeah. skill set fresh, but at the end of the day, my job should be diagnosing, prescribing and, and yeah. treating. And yeah. that's what we're aiming for. I totally agree with you. I think it's just so important to think about what, what it is really makes you tick and makes you enjoy your job. And then also to, to ask to do those things. Because in practice, sometimes I think there is the mindset that, oh, I'll um, sort of, I'll wait to be told what I can do or um, it won't happen. It, it just won't happen. So I'm not going to say anything. But like, you do have to fight for what you want to do and like your role to be. Like the role that I'm doing now, I sort of designed myself. I said, I want to specifically focus on these areas in order to, for me to be able to do this, I need to change my role slightly. And they were, you know, they really welcomed it. So I think it's about taking um, responsibility for your own happiness as well. And if you're in a practice where you ask, um, and maybe perhaps they're not supportive and the culture isn't quite what you're looking for, then there is, you know, go and work somewhere else because you will find somewhere that will take on your enthusiasm and your drive to improve. And like what you were saying just now, Elliot, about, um, you know, what, what task nurses can actually do in practice, again, there's still education to be done there to, to explain to um, veterinary teams, actually, no, she can do that or he can do that. You don't need to do that. The doesn't have to do everything. A lot of this can be delegated to nurses and with that will empower them. So, yeah, it's about having the conversations, taking responsibility. And I think sometimes people just walk away because they're like, oh, it's always been like this, so it's not going to get better. But I think that's not the way to sort of try and walk forward. Like you have to sort of push yourself forward. Um, and put yourself out there a little bit. Say, actually, can I do that? Can I stitch that wound? Can I place that catheter? Can I place that urine catheter? Like you've just said. Um, and then with the support and guidance of your team, you can do it. Of course you can. So yeah, totally on board with you there. I think that's really, really important to think about what makes you happy and to see if your employer will encourage you to focus around those areas of interest or, uh, yeah. Well, so when do you think it's time to leave a job? I think when you try really hard <laughs> to develop yourself, so perhaps, you know, you want to do a CPD course, um, you've explained your reasons why, and nothing's really changed for years, and the, the maybe perhaps the culture of the practice isn't aligned with yours. I think that's really, really important, finding a practice which cultures match your values. Um, and if you feel stale, so you try to sort of reignite your fire in your practice, and it hasn't worked and you're thinking of leaving the profession, don't leave the profession based on, you know, your experience in that one practice. Try somewhere else. Try a few places. Um, because I've worked in practices where um, I have not disliked, but the values have not been as similar 
to my own. Yeah. Or perhaps I couldn't see myself sort of developing in the way that I'd want to there. So I ch- I changed it. It was fine. And you can do that. You know, we always think we have to, you know, find a place and practice and then that's where we stay. But you can be a locum, you can travel around, try before you buy sort of thing. If you find that a practice <laughs> love, hello, can I have a full time job, please? I'm sure they're probably looking for a full time nurse. That's why you're a locum. So that you're very likely to get a job. So just open your eyes and fight for sort of what you want to achieve and practice and what you want to do. It's been a real revelation for my wife, who is an optometrist, and she's stepped out of full-time practice to locum, um, and she was having exactly that problem. Like the the clinic she was working at wasn't really aligned with the patient care she wanted to provide, and she stepped yeah. out and locumed, and she's been all over the place. Like we live in Hertfordshire, but she's been up to um, Newmarket, um, all over the place, cool. trying to find practices, and she's found such joy at some smaller independent practices. Not that being a corporate practice means you're going to be any less, but um, she's. it's really given her, or sort of rekindled her joy for her profession because um, she was getting really bogged down. Yeah. And now if she ever wanted to step into full-time practice, there are a couple of places that have said, you know, if you want the job, it's yours. So that's a really nice point to bring up that it's yeah, <laughs> you Such can a positive, yeah, positive all round. Just a little taster, yeah. a little taste session of, of what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so what have you been learning about recently? You said you like to do a lot of CPD. Have you had any fun webinars yeah. or like uh, hands-on labs or anything that you've been to? Um, well, because I've been furloughed I've, and self-isolating all the cpd i've been doing is at home um and i've I've been watching quite a few webinars made basically around what i love so anesthesia and ecc Uh, there's loads of free stuff available online at the moment you don't have to look too hard to find it Um, and i really do also like looking at um, cpd um from other countries see like how things are different um and not just how they say words differently (laughs) yeah (laughs) um, like drugs that they have that we don't have and why they like they're obsessed certain drugs that we're not obsessed with then we're obsessed with drugs here that they're not obsessed with and um i find it i just find it really really interesting so like the difference for example in drug drug use between america and the uk is it's so so different especially on an on the anesthesia front so i find that really interesting um but i've been doing a lot of um self-care cpd as well so mindfulness because um it's been quite challenging over the last few months from being a busy bee in practice, out of practice, here, there and everywhere, to being at home, um, it's taken some adjusting. So I have had to take some time for myself there as well, as I'm sure a lot of other people have. But, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel yeah. Are you doing some uh, Marie Holloway Chuck's stuff or where are you doing the wellness? Um, I've been doing the various ones on the webinar vet. Um, all of their sort of... Um, wellness and um mindfulness webinars at the moment i think are actually free of charge so um check those out which um has been really really helpful so i've done quite a few different ones um yeah and i've been going on youtube actually and i've been looking at yoga i've actually had a go at doing yoga (laughs) i'm not flexible though i've learned that very early on (laughs) and i've got a bump in the way so that's i'm sort of giving up a little bit now but yeah (laughs) Fair enough. Um, 
I, I really miss because like, I well both my wife and I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu so that's one thing I've missed so so much and of course it's it's something you require another person to do so it's not exactly safe right now and you can do sort of drills at home but nothing really beats like you were talking about being in practice and seeing your coworkers nothing really beats being mm. back in the gym training oh. with your your teammates man it's it's hard it's just not the same it isn't it really isn't last night I did a webinar and one of my colleagues logged on um, I was um, co-hosting and um, she had her camera on so I could see her face and it made me like, I wanted to cry. So I was like, oh, I miss you. Oh, I miss no. so much. <laughs> yeah, but obviously now we can, see, we can see people a bit easier again because they've lifted lockdown slightly. I am going to try and see a few of my colleagues for dis- socially distance walks over the next couple of weeks because, oh my gosh, I found it so hard being away from them all. But, um, oh, yeah. I just, I just want, I can't wait to get back, like use my brain and practice again. Like I really miss that. Yeah. You, know, you, have, you have that really sick patient in front of you and they look terrible and it's like, what can I do? Um, make them feel better. And then like planning with your vet, what steps are we going to do in what order? When do I need to come and tell you X, Y, and Z? What drugs do you like me to give? Like, I love going through like the big jigsaw when you have a really sick patient then. And I really miss using my brain like that. So Ah, well, so, okay, there are two things there I, I want to talk about a little bit more, and I need to say it out loud to remind okay. myself, but one, one, we'll go back to the drug use thing quickly, but then moving on to, um, I think, clinical freedom for nurses in regards to patient t- care. So um, I want to talk about two drugs that we use in the UK quite frequently that maybe our American colleagues don't so much that I just love. Um, and one is methadone. Like methadone? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I knew you were going to say that. Guys. I was like, methadone? Like, guys, miss now. <laughs> get on the methadone train. I like, so the big argument is always cost because in the States it's a lot more expensive, like a hundred dollars a bottle but let me tell you you're using small volumes right so you're using anywhere from 0.1 to maybe 0.4 mg per kg so it's very rare that you're getting to a mil of methadone for a patient so especially our cats you know they're getting 0.1 mils and on average let's say per dose every four to six hours just invest like I've used hydromorphone. I've worked in the States for years in both general practice and emergency practice. And like everyone's vomiting, everyone's panting. Methadone is a dream, man. Mm. You do get the panting occasionally, yeah, but there's no nausea. There's no vomiting. It's just such a nice drug for patients. Just yeah, I order agree. a bottle. It makes life better in a lot of situations. Yes. There's very few situations where it's not helpful. <laughs> Just order one bottle. I promise you. I absolutely promise you that you will. changing. Yep. And you will make money on it. You will. Like if you're charging anywhere from 15 to $30 of an injection, which a lot of people do, um, which is not usually our, our strategy where I am now, um, but you're going to make your money back very easily. Um, and I suppose if you're relying on your opiates as your major source of income, then that's probably not a great strategy or a business strategy anyway, because you're not going to make money there. But the the difference to patient care is is dramatically oh, different. Absolutely. You can give yeah. it IV, you can give it sub-Q, you can give it IM, like just 
give it. <laughs> Not sponsored yeah, by Methadone. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a massive fan. <laughs> yeah, I just say anesthesia is so much, the animals are just so much more settled. You have to do far less interventions because, you know, that there is no physiological, well, often a much lower response to surgical stimulus. Um, I love it. I just think it's great. Oh. Big fan. Can you guess the second drug? Second drug. Well, I know over there they don't really, they're, they're a bit frightened of dexmedetomidine and metatomidine, but then here I, I think it's really helpful. And I mean, you probably don't use it as much as we do in our practice because I don't know whether you do, maybe CRIs and things more than fractal like sedations and things. But I just think it's really helpful. You can use like tiny, weeny, meany little doses, which you wouldn't even think did anything when you draw up in the syringe. And yet, you know, you have your dysphoric dog on recovery and they're like, I'm yep. fine now. Or, you know, for its analgesic properties, I just think it's a really good adjunct drug. And yeah, I'm a big fan. But, um, you know, in the forums, there's always this fear. Oh, gosh. But it's like, it's all, do- it's all dose dependent, patient specific. Um, and put him with his other friend, Mr. Methadone. Life oh, is yeah. amazing then. <laughs> so, no, we use we use the crap out of it in the ICU. Um, even full sedation, like it's not a drug that I'm I'm terribly scared about. And yeah, patient population is important. But you know, anywhere from one to three micrograms per kilogram of dexmedetomidine yeah. makes such a difference. Such a difference. Hell, if there's a heart yeah. murmur, oh well. <laughs> not encouraging you to use it in all your cardiac but- patients, but you know, used judiciously and safely and you can reverse it and you can't Absolutely. reverse aspermazine yeah um and yeah. Uh, when i am um, we i went on a cpd course a few years ago and they were talking about microdosing altitudes and when i came back into practice um i we had a team talk and we adapted a lot of our standard pre-med protocols from using aspermazine to altitudes for routine electives um and also in other instances as well um and to start with like the team were like the dose is so lowly that it's not going to do anything. You know, the station dose is 25 micro kilo. You know, telling me that five micro is going to make my dog asleep. And, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. and then, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially so IV. It's, like, it's just, yeah, it's amazing. I think, but crikey dingo, like if they go to sleep on five mics, like why don't we give them 25? It's like, surely it's better to give them a lower dose and then try to titrate it and increase it as and when you need it rather than whacking them full 25 mics straight out. But um, obviously, that's not my decision as a veterinary nurse. But I just find drugs really interesting in drug doses. I think it is a drug that's just so helpful, enormously helpful. I think we'd be lost without it. Agreed. Um, that that was one of the biggest things I learned during my internship, as I was a little heavier-handed with the metatomidine, like using twenty for sedations. But after seeing how many patients were happily sedated for radiographs um, on five to ten mics per kilo like even young healthy bouncy labradors having yeah um, yep. x-rays 0.3 mix per kg butorphanol five to ten mix per kg of metatomidine and they are zonked out for the count and it's brilliant and then you reverse them they're happy yep. um, they always need to use a yep. toilet afterwards because you know it definitely <laughs> gets the bladder and the bowels going um I, I think it's a fantastic drug. And interestingly, I don't know where the data is on this, but 
from what I've heard for human patients in the ICU, it actually helps maintain the normal sleep-wake cycle. So Sleep. Yeah, I'd, I'd read that somewhere as well, which is really interesting. It's like sleep's so important, isn't it? Um, yeah. And you always, I sometimes think of those patients when they're, they're in for a long period of time and I don't know, they have something painful, so you're giving them the methadone, but like they're all busy all day. Like, are they actually having time to rest? Like sometimes yeah. it, is it actually quite a nice idea to give them a little something, something so they actually have a, a proper break, like sleep? Um, I think that is something that's sometimes overlooked. Well, I was a little critical of of vets who would sedate barking dogs when I was nursing because I was like, oh, you're just doing it for your convenience rather than the patient's benefit. But actually, would you like the stress help healing? Does barking for 27 hours a day actually do something for them or their patients? Like, I'd, I'm, yeah, like catecholamine release. Like, we don't really want that to happen. And if they're really stressed, then it probably is happening. So, it's, yeah, it swings around about, isn't it? But it's not like, you know, smacking them out of the head. Yeah. So they're like super duper unconscious. But as we said, we've like using just a little smidgen of something to enable them just to sit down, not even go to sleep fully, but yes. just to relax. Like, and oh, then that's all they, need. they just sit and they just chill. And trazodone as well. God bless trazodone. I wish it came as an yeah. injectable. I use that in my dog. Yeah, bless his little cotton socks. I lost him last year, but he had to cage rest him for he had a, a spinal, um, he had a disc prolapse. Um, and on cage rest, like he really was not like loving life. He was finding it really challenging. Um, and the tra- the trazodone um, really made a massive difference. I could not believe my stress head stress head of a dog was relaxed. Yeah. So um, yeah, that was the that did convince me. <laughs> what I love about about Shailen yeah. and working with Shailen is is one of his things, like the whole fear free thing, right? Like great initiative, but why yeah. stop there? Why not try and make it as positive as an experience as pos- as possible? And oh, absolutely. Ah, oh, the the you know, especially the the brachycephalix, just a few micrograms of. Of ace per kilo of acepromazine or metatomidine, man, and they just chill. Like you say, they don't necessarily go to sleep or get sedated, but they just are visibly relaxed and they're moving around and they're getting in comfortable positions. And it's like, can you imagine going from being really anxious to all of a sudden just feeling like, oh, I'm okay? Lovely. Yeah. I think cats, (laughs) I think again, if you have a cat, a cat doing it, um, you click on their records and it comes up, you know, Asbo cat or Watch It cat or whatever you put on your records to pre-warn staff of when animals um, have been known for being tricky in the past. Like, if you know that animal's coming in, then, like, what can you plan with the owner drug-wise in advance before they come in to make their experience better? And I know, again, off-license drugs, gabapentin, has to be prescribed by the veterinary surgeon, but like that, gabapentin is, is a game-changer mm. in cats that gets sort of fear aggression in practice like i do think it makes a massive difference my ferocious beast of a cat i managed to get a jugular sample from at the practice with like minimal restraint gently lifting her head after she'd had a gabapentin it really worked so it. <laughs> yeah not all of my animals have issues after they do but um, yeah <laughs> hey no one's perfect oh but we yeah. we're, we're very aggressive with um early enteral nutrition for a lot of our feline patients so a lot of them will get no or ng mm. tubes and now we've got the liquid transidone which do not give it orally because cats lose their mind over the flavor it's horrible um, but yeah. down an ng tube some liquid gabapentin from a distance just and they just go from like hiding and tense and like maybe a little hissy to kittens yeah. and they're rubbing up on you Blurpy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so the yeah. other other drug I was going to uh, want to promote is paracetamol. 
Um, or, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, not used enough here in the UK, I don't think. Yeah, and not for cats, like, of course. Oh, I mean, um, not for cats, sorry, no, but um, <laughs> we, like, when I worked in referral, a lot in um, dogs, and um, I thought it made a massive difference. But um, in my practice, we have started using it more definitely in the last year, but I think because it's still off license, a lot of um, practices don't use it. But I, I think it's like it, it makes a massive difference as well, especially when sort of non-steroids contraindicated, you need another sort of adjunct analgesic. Yeah. Like I think it's, it makes a big difference. I think, again, I grew up in the veterinary industry in the States and it was, it was um, Tylenol's the big brand of paracetamol, which in the States is acetaminophen. And it's like Tylenol kills dogs. So it's like, no, you do not give that. And then learning that actually it's fine. Um, again, yeah. toxin is always dose dependent for the most part. So, but again, they're a bit, isn't it the same in America with um, non-steroidals? There's a big fear because I have a colleague who works in America um, and she said that when they prescribe non-steroidals, they ask owners to sign a disclaimer um, about renal damage. But it's like, well, it's all dose dependent, isn't it? And we don't do that here and touch wood, like it doesn't seem to be a problem. So, Well, their dosing recommendation yeah. for meloxicam in cats was... Uh, 0.3 mg per kg on a daily basis to begin with, whereas ours is 0.05. So there was a massive dose discrepancy. So they got the black box warning, not for long-term use, et cetera, et cetera. So for us, you know, I use meloxicam in CKD cats if they need long-term arthritis control at, you know, three micrograms per kilo, or 30, sorry, micrograms per kilogram per day, paper, and it's fine. There that came out last year. There was an evidence paper that came out last year as well saying that um, <clears throat> the effects of non-steroidals at um, like just normal recommended doses, I think it was meloxicam was fine in cats with yeah. CKD, and obviously it's like um, welfare versus, um, you know, it's better to have a cat that's comfy than one that's not comfy but like lives longer. Yeah. But even so, like the evidence paper did say that it, it is it is fine with with mod good monitoring, but that's the same for anything that a patient's on. Yeah, and I don't want to sound blasé about like dishing out paracetamol and non-steroidals to everyone under the sun. Um, although one of my supervisors during my internship did ask if I was sponsored by paracetamol. Um, <laughs> but, you know, these drugs with right patient selection are fantastic. And even, so yeah, we worry about paracetamol in patients with liver disease because paracetamol overdoses cause liver failure, but actually some of the recent human literature looking into it, they still recommend its use for patients with severe liver disease. You know, alcoholics with bad cirrhosis can have paracetamol mm -hmm. safely. So, you know, we yeah, are using it in patients yeah. with some liver disease with severe pain because actually there's not really any evidence to suggest that you can't. And there is evidence to suggest you can. Again, not encouraging you to go wild with the yeah. paracetamol and the liver patients, but um, in <sighs> there's always people say like in the right hands or in my hands, which means nothing to me, but used carefully with proper patient selection yeah. and consent, go wild. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to jump to was your comment on um, your nursing of patients and being actively involved. So yeah. how, 
like how do your vets approach do they give you like a pain score range and say within this pain score give this much outside of it give this much or like is it very strict do you have to go back for every decision talking to your veterinarians you're working with or do you have some freedom within certain criteria or what's the deal no a lot a lot of it is communication based so as in as in um we'll set an intervention so we're going to give a patient a fluid bonus for example um and then afterwards I'll either go back and tell them the result or it depends who I'm working with because they're all quite different. There is, there's nothing set in stone. Others will say, oh yeah, after you've done that, if it hasn't improved, repeat it, um, things like that. If, if, if it's in regards to analgesia, often if the pain's score, we use the Glasgow, um, the Glasgow one. So if the score says they should probably have some analgesia, then the vet's already authorised it at that point. So we don't have to go and sort of interrupt consults to get their consent to give it we've already found that out yeah. but it really depends on the type of patient if it's a really critical patient um, and things weren't going in the way I wanted or I thought it should be going then I would go and communicate rather than sort of repeat another intervention but um, it depends some some are much more relaxed than others but now yeah, so can I give another fluid bonus the heart um, the blood pressure is still only this I'm like yeah of course go for it but it's really hard sometimes you know that they're going to say yes but you still have to have, make sure you don't break the code of conduct. As a nurse, when you've been in practice for years, you can mind read them. You know exactly what drugs they want. You know when you, they probably want to give them, what equipment they're going to want. Um, you know, under anaesthesia, for example, as well, often if I've got a problem and I'll say, oh, I've got this issue, um, I think I should do this. They'll be like, do what, do what you think, Blue. But it's like, yeah, that, okay, thanks. That's great. Trust me. But it's, you know, it's, it's really hard then because you're like, oh, if, if they're that happy to sort of delegate this part of the picture to me, I wish I could just do it. But obviously we have the code of conduct, so we have to make sure we're touching base regularly. But I hope in time things will change like that a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's like, you know, we're not vets are doing surgery. Like the last thing they want is 50 million questions or can I do this? Can I do this? Can I do this? You know, if if you've got the knowledge to be able to sort of support them and assist them and tell them what you're doing, almost, then they'll be like, yeah, that's fine. Or no, that's not fine. I don't know. It, it's a tricky one. I feel a bit, that's one of my areas that I'd love to work on yeah. moving forward for us as a profession. Just have a bit more autonomy. So it's like, you know, cause we do everything under, under direction, but actually as nurses, we know a lot. So often it's just feedback confirmation that what we think we want to do is okay and that's all right obviously but it would be nice to have more recognition of what we know does that make sense i don't know if i've just completely waffled a lot of posh then <laughs> no that's that makes perfect sense for for well two things one i i love to make my decision making process very clear to my coworkers, and i sort of again waffle on out loud about why i'm making certain decisions but then also offer that as criteria for my nursing team or my nursing colleagues to work within that criteria so it's like well we're giving point two mix for cake methadone right now if you feel like we give them point two the pain score is still higher they're uncomfortable very happy for you to give another point one assess how they're doing yeah during a fluid resus you know, if the heart rate's still over 140, the mentation is this, then please give another bolus and then come get me. Or um, uh, feeding, physical therapy, various things 
there's only so many decisions you can make in a day before you start to fatigue a little bit as well. And man, there is nothing better than a nurse's intuition. And that's even supported by data because the NHS have, you know, anytime you go into the A&E, they have like a sepsis um, algorithm. So it's like, if the patient's yeah. showing this, this, and this, um, then they should have a sepsis flag. But they found that the nursing team, their own, um, what do they call it, gestalt or like gut instinct about whether a patient's yeah. septic or not, you know, knocks the, the algorithm out of the park. And one, I, do, I totally can re like relate to that. You just, you just know sometimes that something's not right and you need to like speak up and go with it. And most of the time you are right that something's not okay. <laughs> so yeah, that's really interesting. Well, a few weeks ago, we had a patient in the cot um, who was critically unwell. I wasn't there, but the nurse involved in the case told me the story just because it highlights this point so well. And she's like, I, I couldn't put my finger on it, but I knew something wasn't right. And she's like, you know, I said out loud once, you know, I feel like something's really not right with this patient. And I feel like something's going to happen. And, you know, the patient was evaluated. They were like similar to how they were. You know, the vitals hadn't changed dramatically. Five minutes later, the patient had gone into cardiac arrest. Um, no. yeah. And, you know, we had no objective data to suggest that was going to happen. But, you know, she had this feeling after spending two days with this patient and she knew there was just something, you know, her instinct told her that yeah. this patient was going to deteriorate and she was 100% right. And it happens all the time. And that instinct should never be ignored. Absolutely. I gave her back that gut instinct comes with like time and experience. And I think you just like really take hold of it and listen to it. I often, one of the, my vets, um, our clinical vet lead actually, sometimes I'll see a patient and I'll be like, mm, I don't think it's going to do. And she'll be like, oh no, Lou, really? You really? <laughs> like, cause normally the Oracle like, has I, just, said. I just have this feeling. And she's like, oh, go away. Like, I don't want to know. Go away. <laughs> but um, yeah, I do think you get this feeling and they're like nurses, nurses are often around the patient a lot more um, than the veterinary surgeons in most practices so it's like you do see those subtle changes and you think hmm um ain't right so no I think that's the really yeah something ain't right <laughs> yeah absolutely have you come across this civility saves lives movement no I haven't tell me more so I mean, if you if you picture a scenario, and we've touched on this a little bit already, where you have that concern or you have any concern and you bring it to a colleague and they shun you or they're rude to you or they tell you to bugger off, mm -hmm. um, the longer that goes on, the less likely you are to advocate for your, or advo <laughs> advocate Patience. rather yeah. than advocate, uh, mm. the spot on products, which we are not sponsored by. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and what they found that is, the the way you behave towards your coworkers or the way that you feel you're being treated directly impacts patient safety because you're less Absolutely. likely to speak up yeah. and so they're saying help yeah. even if you don't like that person even if you've had a lot of conflicts with them you still need to find a way to be civil to each other so you can approach each other and bring yeah, up importance yes Absolutely. yeah yeah yeah, no, I get that. Professional respect, it goes a long way. But you don't have to be best friends with people. But, you know, valuing each other's input, experience, and 
concerns is so important. And again, it's all a cultural thing. I think we all have to take responsibility to be to each other and to almost leave your sort of ego at the door. And even sometimes I would say your job title, because when we're dealing with patients, experience and those little, as we've just said, the things that say mm, something is right here, the feeling that you can speak up is so important. So changing sort of like the open learning environment, like you've already got going at the Ralph, everyone stands together and discusses the patient in detail, start to finish every single section of what you're going to do with them. Um, that in itself will be massively game-changing to how everyone feels at work. So I think we, as a profession, we have a lot more work to do about changing how we interact with each other like that. Amen. Well, Amen. we're going to wind down now. Um, yeah, let as as we're coming <laughs> to the end. <laughs> well, we'll have to we'll have to do round two sometime soon. That would be lovely. Um, do you want to tell lockdown us? I like it, <laughs> or like post post lockdown. I'm optimistic that maybe that will be sometime soon, but I got a feeling it won't be. Um, the lockdown yep. ending. Um, do you want to tell us what what you as uh, alter ego Lou the vet nurse have to offer for your your colleagues and students and friends out in the world and what sort of resources you've you've got going? Yeah, so I'm not really going to promote my resource actually so much, but just to say that professionally as me, that I'm still here for everybody and I hope to continue inspiring and motivating and empowering nurses from a, from close by and from afar as well. So um, that's it really. And just to, as we've, we've touched on so much during this session about um, feeling empowered, communicating with each other, being proactive, positive, um, just to keep going with all of that. So push yourself out there, find your happiness and make your own you know, special place in practice. And that brings us to the end of our podcast. Thank you everyone for listening. I will go ahead and put up the things that we talked about in the podcast in the show notes. So be sure to check that out. You can either look on our website, vetemerge.cc or on wherever you're looking for your podcasts under the show notes. Otherwise, Lou's contact information will be under there as well. If you have any questions, please do get in touch. Otherwise, thank you for listening.